in high school band, we used to do this exercise where we would all play a major chord and whoever was on the third would drop by a half step first. And then the person who was on the fifth would drop by a half step, you know, so it becomes a minor chord, then a diminished chord, mm -hmm. and then the, the root would drop. And so it like finds a uh, major chord again. I like always loved that exercise. And so this piece, I basically the drift that happens in the music is that, but with the sharp nine chord. Well, you have this new job, uh, right? Yep. I don't know if it's, it's public, right? It's public now. From what yeah. I understand, yeah. yeah, you got this new job at yeah. University of Pittsburgh. Yep. And what's so what was like the process of applying to that and getting the gig? And I guess are you going to relocate now from um, Philadelphia? Yeah. So it's a one-year visiting position. Okay. So because of that, you know, my family lives in Philly. Our my parents and my wife's parents live around Philly. So I don't really want to uproot the whole family for a one-year thing so i'm traveling back and forth every week um but it's yeah it's a great it's a great gig i, I teach like one class and three lessons and so i only have to be up there kind of two or three days a week and then i can come back so it's yeah it's gonna be it's gonna be really fun i'm teaching like doctoral students which i've been teaching undergrad for a while now so i'm excited to nerd out cool yeah so you go there, but then like, so if you go, let's say, I don't know what days, Monday and Tuesday, mm -hmm. you go there and then come back the same day and then same thing on the I'll next day. I'll go, I'll go up example. like Sunday night and come back Tuesday night. Okay. Yeah. And they give you like a situation there, a hotel. Uh, I, I'm, no, I'm doing a, I like rented a place there. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And how far is it? It's like five hours. <laughs> Shit. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a, that's a commitment. It's, it's, <laughs> it's going to be epic. <laughs> It's a really, it's a really cool job, and so I'm very excited about it. And it also just like made more sense for my family. So you kind of have to like balance those two things. Yeah. So no, make it work for the year. Yeah. No, I mean the reason I ask is because I mean uh, people watching the show, or if there, if there are people watching the show, I don't know. <laughs> they, um, this is like the real life, you know, of yeah. a composer. I feel like this is more the real life of a composer than than what you see, Philip Glass or <laughs> John Adams or name your yeah. composer. I mean, I feel like this is more of the story that I that I hear uh, like 90 plus percent of the time. 100%. And the other, and the other like, oh, I'm going to just work commission to commission and that's going to be my life. I don't hear that. <laughs> no, I think, I mean, when I was doing my doctorate at Cornell, my wife lived in Philly. She, we had lived there for like a year or so before I started that degree and it was definitely, you know, a place that I wanted to be. And also my wife had just gotten this job at the EPA where she just like was, that's what was her dream job, you know? So like the idea of her leaving that was nonsensical as well. So we did like long distance for three years while I was doing my coursework. Um, and, you know, every weekend, every week we would travel. One of us would travel back and forth. You know, when you're starting that, it was kind of like, oh, is this is this the right choice or is this like, and I feel, it feels like a bold move, I think. And then like, as soon as I got to Cornell, it was like, oh, you're doing long distance. You're doing long distance. You're traveling back and forth here. You know, just like, I feel like, you know, being in, in music, you, nothing just happens in your local town all the time. It's like, part of it is like just getting used to the travel, kind of embracing it. I think. I mean, that was the same thing with me too. Cause like yeah. my wife, I mean, she was at Princeton. Yeah. You know, and I was off doing 
whatever the hell I was doing. I was going from, I was going from residency to residency to residency. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't really working. I wasn't really making money, but I felt like that's what I had to do at that time. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what you had to do. You had to do your coursework and you had to finish up the degree. Yeah. So after that, you got the degree, you at Cornell, did you just, was the whole point of going to Philadelphia to find that job that would match with where your wife is? Is that how you ended up at the University um, of the Arts? Or was it it kind of, it, it worked out. Now, quick pit stop to let you know that I do offer one-on-one -on -one consultations and lessons in regards to anything composition related. This can range for helping you put together your portfolio for any composition degree that you're applying to, or you might want to improve your creative chops as a composer from week to week or month to month, or you might want to get a better handle of the behind the scenes of what it's like to be a composer. How do you sell your sheet music? How do you negotiate commission rates? How do you apply to contests? How do you apply to grants? How do you do anything as a composer, let alone just writing the music? So if this is you, you can contact me using the link down in the description below. I got the gig there actually right before I started at Cornell and University of the Arts um, in Philadelphia. And then I kind of like left because I had to do a TA, you know, teaching assistant work at Cornell. So I was like, I can't do both of these things. It's a little too hectic. Um, so they kind of like left an open door for me when I finished my coursework to come back and do that. And so I kind of had just been writing that and, you know, commissions and stuff for, you know, several years. So I was just, it worked out great that I could be in Philly and, you know, I love Philly very much. It's where, like I said, my family is from. So it worked out that it, I could spend, you know, several years sticking around there. Yeah, I mean, speaking of commissions, I don't know if this was a specific commission. I think it was this piece called Vinyl. Mm -hmm. Was that a commission for Alarmo Sound? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's let's hear a couple minutes of that. Let's start with that. Yeah, great. Cool.
talking about this tune, I, you know, because this is an orchestral tune. I remember, I don't know if this is the first time that we met. Uh, I think it is, but I'm not sure. Is it the first time when we were, we were doing the Minnesota Orchestra gig together? I think that was might have been the first time or second time that we met. Um, yeah. It, we yeah. might have met before at Princeton, maybe. Yeah, that, yeah. That might be a possibility. Yeah, I feel like we had, yeah, we had some... Uh, Venn diagram of, of yeah, there is, I, yeah, I don't remember actually the first time. But, yeah, yeah, I remember that time period between like 2016, 2015, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and like 2018, 19. Yeah. There was like a lot of intense activity yeah. that me and you were overlapping in. Yeah. I remember there was, you would win this, and I would win it the next year. I would win something, and you would win it the next year. We yeah. would win it at the same time. <laughs> there yeah. was like this frenzy of stuff, and then, yeah. you know, that happens when you're in your late 20s and then yeah. you know you get into your 30s and you're you want to settle down yeah. you age out of the competition yeah, that's right that's right that's right <laughs> you're yeah. trying to get a real job <laughs> and yeah. um i can't remember what that piece was it wasn't this piece though it was another uh, it was piece. yeah the minnesota orchestra thing was mosaic which mosaic, is uh, yeah another one yeah so that that was a full orchestra thing the alarm roll sound is like a symphonietta uh, plus plus two there's it's like a 16 player orchestra yeah. um but alarm roll sound is like I mean, they're just an absolutely incredible ensemble. I remember, I remember like feeling like when I was like starting to write that piece, you know, you feel like a little, a little pressure when you're writing for like a great group to like nail it, you know, like just actually uh, we were talking about Nadia Sirota earlier. Um, she was still in a normal sound when I wrote this piece and um, I had been listening to her podcast, uh, Meet the Composer and just was like, you know, just thought I just thought she was like a really cool person, and I just really wanted to write her a gnarly viola solo. So this piece has like this, you know, big epic, like goes from the very bottom of the viola all the way to like the screaming top of it. You know, I just like, you felt like all, there's all these great players. You want to like take advantage of that. So I kind of I, sp- I spent a lot of time on this piece and trying to get it so that it could like really showcase you know a lot of the musicianship in that ensemble. And so the excerpt that I played just now it's actually right after that solo mm-hmm. viola cadenza mm-hmm. where you get like this humongous uh, mass of sound yeah, yeah. Uh, that starts with like i think the the tempo text there it said um you know 33 rpm or uh it's a 45 what did i write here 33 rpm to 45 rpm mm-hmm. you know i'm like okay mm-hmm. some shit's about to go down you yeah. know <laughs> with this uh with this uh you know this marking here and it did it, it didn't disappoint so that's the, <laughs> that's the part that i played yeah for me when I really like something that I hear and and can't figure it out how it's done, like for whatever reason to me, that combination is what excites me a lot. Mm-hmm, and that's mm-hmm. what this part of the piece especially did to me. So I was like wondering, like since you're here, I'm like, how, I mean, you don't have to get too nitty gritty into it, but I'm just wondering like how, how did you come up with this part here at the, at the very end of the piece yeah. and with these things that if you're looking at the score, it says up 6% and down 6% these kind of markings yeah and you look at it you're like what the what, what what's what am i what am i looking at here because mm-hmm. it sounds awesome yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> no i can totally nerd it up out about this uh yeah so the idea for the piece finals like every everything in this piece is all about trying to take the flaws of the you know medium of vinyl records and sort of bring that to the fore make it the content of the piece itself so there's all these like string solos that are kind of like what I imagine as like this is the material that's on the record, and then the piece like quickly turns off of that and like then becomes like oh a, a scratch or a skip, 
um, becomes the, the content itself. So when we get to the section that you played, this is a, a shift between a 33 RPM record and a 45 RPM record. If you have a record player, sometimes it's like a notch. It can be a 33 speed or a 45 speed. But some of them you have like actually glide. You can glide between those two. And so um, the 6% is like basically how much uh, change has to happen to go up by a half step. And so that would speed up the sort of the tempo of the piece, but it would also change the pitch. So that moment in the material oh, okay. is like slowly drifts its way up from 33 speed to 45 RPM speed, which is actually a, about a perfect fifth. Um, so it has this, it has this long drift up. Uh, chromatically up a perfect fifth and then I snap it back down to 33 rpm at the end of that so it kind of has this like 5-1 cadential thing that, that sort of happens at the end of it but the drift is all this like this is sort of like a thing that I've, a sound I've always been obsessed with in high school band we used to do this exercise where um, we would all play a major chord and whoever was on the third would drop by a half step first and then person who was on the fifth would drop by a half step you know so it becomes a minor chord then a diminished chord mm -hmm. and then the, the root would drop and so it like finds a uh, major chord again and so I was I like always loved that exercise and so this piece I basically the drift that happens in the music is that but with the sharp nine chord the, you know the, the sharp nine drifts into a major nine if um, you have a sharp nine chord what's the uh, oh, sorry, yeah, yeah sorry it's a it's actually not a, a dominant seven just to clarify it's a major chord with a sharp nine added added okay added just, just clarifying yeah yeah, yeah. For, 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 for all, all the, the nerds stick, out there. <laughs> for all the stick <laughs> or, i didn't hear a seven in there. <laughs> yeah yeah um and yeah so i just i liked how i could like play on that old idea and it helped me sort of like um all these different voices are drifting between these different you know final speeds I mean, for me, because I study with uh, Georg Friedrich Haas, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and um, I don't know how much contact you had with that music, but, you know, hearing this kind of music, like in the, because you got to hear the first five, six minutes of the piece, I feel like, because it, it sets up a completely different context when you hear this excerpt, because if I had just heard this excerpt in the very beginning, I'm like, oh, it sounds like Haas, you know, because mm -hmm. he does kind of the same drifting thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But when you put it in this context, after all the other material that you did before, it has it sounds so completely fresh. Yeah. It doesn't sound like that kind of music anymore. I mean, it sounds like you're trying to mimic something else, which, which, which is what you're doing. Yeah. With Haas, it's like he's got this whole like temporal landscape euphoria thing yeah. he's trying to do but yeah. yours is not that way at all it's yeah so i mean yeah i i it, it's funny that you bring him up because he was actually the uh mentor composer for mizzou festival which is where this, this piece was premiered so um <laughs> he he actually is so funny we were doing the sort of a pre-concert talk and we're sort of like talking to an audience of like of layman's people who sometimes know a lot about music sometimes know absolutely nothing and they're just there to experience it and and he asked me this like really nerdy question about like you know what i was like trying to do because it was like very much in his wheelhouse of like this is you know you're setting up these these chords that are drifting and think you know how does that relate to tonality and stuff and i just like had to like completely kind of pivot to make this like make sense to a sort of a, a lay a lay audience but you know my my hope is that you know that music is impactful without all the nerdy stuff we just talked about yeah to tr just trying to focus on the concept of like this 
pitch warping. That's such a cool feature and a familiar feature, I think, for a lot of people, a lot of music lovers about that medium. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to get into it when you're thinking yeah. about it that way. I mean, it, and for me, I, I sort of wish in a way I didn't have all that other knowledge because it's kind of like baggage. <laughs> like when I hear it, I'm like, the hosp thing starts turning on my brain mm -hmm. and then I lose the, okay, what's he doing with the, the vinyl records? Because I'm not familiar with mm -hmm. that. Yeah. But but people that are into music, that are that collect music and things like that, they know that stuff. Mm -hmm. But me, as mm -hmm. since I'm you know younger, I don't know anything about the vinyl records. So <laughs> yeah. that's why to me, I don't have that connection yeah. that I do with the Haas repertoire. So it's kind of, for me, it's the opposite. <laughs> yeah, right. the opposite. I want to know what are the chords you're using yeah, yeah, yeah. and how is it drifting exactly uh -huh. and yeah. that kind of thing. And uh, I also think it's very fresh too that there's nothing really to do with just intonation. Even though you use microtones and stuff, it's not in that spectral kind of way. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, do, I, some of the chords in that piece at the very end of it, a few places, I do kind of write overtone chords, but I don't, uh, tune them microtonally to adjust intonation. Yeah, you're not like trying to listen in on that. It's not the point. Yeah, the right, right. I think uh, overtone on. chords are just uh, to me they're just powerful, right? It's uh, the it's so resonant with itself. Um, any yeah, anytime you reinforce the overtones, it's going to have extra, I think, power and presence to me. So that was more the goal than referencing, yeah, spectralism. No, it's, it's it's super powerful, and I think that that last part, I think at the very end of the excerpt, it's the yeah. There's a new tempo text says um, artifacts and distortion. Mm -hmm. Is that the part where it resolves to the one chord? Yeah, there? yeah okay, yeah. Because that's where end of the excerpt. So, okay, that that's meaty right there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it is, but it <laughs> feels like a final resolution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I th I think the in, in that case, you know, just like sometimes it happens, particularly with really. I notice it anymore and anyway personally like when you have really loud records especially old records it just like it get like some things you get these uh like in a you know like the term like a wolf tone from a cello yeah. where you get like these things that just like really like this pitch really pops that is kind of how i feel about some sometimes with these old records you get these frequencies that just like explode you know <laughs> i wanted to make sure that, that that happened at the climax of this piece um so like i'm you know I like write like four Fs for the French horn, like write massive and brassy, like make sure there's no, <laughs> there's no chance for them not to like make this completely overwhelming. So yeah, that was, that was the goal there. I mean, it's interesting too, cause it's for Sinfianetta and, but I, I don't, I don't know for whatever reason we are mosaic piece. It didn't have that kind of, the, the piece with the Minnesota orchestra. I don't remember a moment like that where everything was, where it's, it felt like a huge orchestra. Mm. Am I being completely, maybe I don't remember it as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so that, that piece, like, goes through, it's kind of a similar formal structure in that, like, it's got, it's more active and maybe energetic in the first half of it, and then it's, like, slows down. So it kind of becomes, like, it's more of, like, a chorale at the end of Mosaic. So it's sort of more more broadening as opposed to, like, the... Yeah, aggressive distortion. <laughs> yeah, I mean, without vinyl. getting, yeah. I guess, too into that piece, because I'm not, we're not going to play that one. But I, I guess my other question is, which, because I've also worked with Sinfianetta, and I have pieces for Sinfianetta, and I have pieces for orchestra. Is there like, was there like, a, and we both did the Minnesota Orchestra thing, that they have this reading that they do every year, where mm -hmm. they have like six, seven pieces that yeah. get picked, and then the Minnesota Orchestra plays them throughout the week. And um, Kevin Putz was our mentor at the mm -hmm. time. I don't mm -hmm. know if he's still doing it. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah but is there a, was there a difference to you rehearsing this piece for Alarmo Sound? I've never worked with Alarmo Sound before, but uh, rehearsing like a piece like Mosaic with the Minnesota Orchestra, for example. Uh, yeah, I mean, I th I think 
All Normal Sound is like a new music ensemble, and the Minnesota Orchestra is like, you know, they they play more standard romantic and classical repertoire. Um, so you get you get very different takes on ideas for sure. Like orchestra musicians are really good at like drawing out musicality in you know lines that would be more familiar to their repertoire. So if if I for example with Mosaic, which is the the piece. Um, that they played in, in Minnesota when I had the chorale stuff it was like great like, you know like this is like super familiar to them if I had a piece like vinyl where some in the opening sections of that material it's like I need you to be like snarling this is a this is a record skip it has to like you know there's in that there's a, a rake across the vibraphones with the back ends of, of four wooden mallets to get this big kind of effect you know that's not as that's not in a lot of romantic repertoire. So you get normal sound is much more f- familiar with trying to get some of those. Uh, I think colors of aggression and I don't know. I think there's just different fortes for those different groups. Um, but Symphonietta stuff, I think it's it's smaller. This the smaller ensemble means you. I feel like my interest was kind of focusing on individual individual players a bit more than you do in the orchestra. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you have like talk about Mahler symphonies or something and it's like oh you have like these moments where there's like one or three players playing at a time and then you get the big orchestra that works on the scale of like a 30 40 50 60 or 90 minute pieces if you're talking about Mahler (laughs) but when you have an orchestra uh that's a it's a eight minute piece you know going down to three players is like it can it can pull out a lot of the energy if you do that for too long so for me with uh writing shorter orchestra pieces. I feel like if I'm writing for full orchestra, I want to like really take advantage of the forces on the stage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I kind of have the opposite view completely. (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) It's interesting. Yeah. I I mean, I agreed with everything you said actually up to the last point, but it makes sense. I mean, I get why people do that, but uh, my, my feeling, maybe I misunderstood what you said, but my feeling is that with an orchestra, I I like the contrast between everybody playing and then like a soloist or what I like to do a lot is like start from one and and, and then get to many mm. and do it in a short amount in of your, time. Yeah, and your that happens in your Yeah, in your I'm doing it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just love I just love it. I yeah. just like the idea of especially the strings. I love yeah. the idea of everybody getting to have their own part, which makes the the Sibelius file a mess. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It runs really slow, but <laughs> yeah, and makes parts uh, hell, yeah. <laughs> living hell. <laughs> but right, uh, right. I, I just like it. I just like the sound that I get out of it, and I like what you're saying with the symphonetta, that idea of giving individuality. Like I miss that when I go to an orchestra concert. Sure, I wish that sure. I I know what the, you know, I know that the second, uh, you know, in the second violin section, that person that's playing, you know, fifth desk inside player, you know, I know that person is a great player, you know, maybe the, maybe yeah. the best in their class and whatever <laughs> conservatory they went to. Mm-hmm. But now they've been in this orchestra, you know, they're getting paid well and all that and that stuff and they're raising a family and et cetera, but they're not, get, they don't get that opportunity to show off. Yeah. Uh, so for me, that's what I, that's what I strive to do a little bit. But then sometimes they get upset <laughs> when I do that too. Cause it's like, wait, I don't want to, I don't want to, I want to blend, you know, they get used to the blending and they get used to playing right. in that way. So I think it's important for us as composers to, to write both the symphonetta stuff, chamber stuff and the orchestra stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I'm also agreeing with you too, though. I mean, I, I think it's more to me about, I was thinking sort of specifically about the two pieces of mine we've been talking about where there are there are definitely solo moments for me in, in Mosaic in the larger orchestra piece, but I feel like I like, okay, you get a little taste of this so you mm-hmm. can know like that we're, we're focusing on really small details, but also then quickly then expanding into a much larger ensemble and you're I think you know I, I hear that in your pieces too where you can have you have that sort of like different levels of focus where you can zoom in on something focus on individuality versus the whole is very important in large orchestra stuff too it's just about I I think in a shorter piece I can I kind of think about doing that more quickly like mm-hmm. getting getting that focus and then pulling out to see it you know, the full ensemble. Whereas like a symphonietta thing, you can, I feel like you have much more flexibility to focus on smaller details uh, just for longer, just because there's less happening on stage. Yeah, I mean, and I also miss that idea of when you're playing a symphonietta, especially new music symphonietta, they're very open to playing really whatever you want. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, I do miss that aspect in an orchestra because, like, I really hate, like, having to explain, like, oh, I want this, I want this, I want this. <laughs> like, if you see, like, an Andrew Norman score, you know, like, play or sustain or any of these yeah, things, yeah. He, he's got, like, a block of text, like, that big right over, like, you know, every other every other system, it seems like. Yeah. And I just wish, like, he has to do that because, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but if you put that for a Larmal sound, I think you can, I, I, I honestly think you can put a note head and they would already know what that is because yeah. they've seen many composers use that same notation for whatever he's describing. Yeah. I mean, I think, like, Sol Ponticello is, like, one of these, like, <laughs> foundational places you learn that. Like, if you have Sol Ponticello is where a string player plays a little closer to the bridge and it gets this kind of, like, gnarly metallic kind of sound. And if you give Sol Ponticello to an orchestra that plays romantic repertoire regularly, then they play just, just a hair closer to the bridge. It gets a little bit metallic. And if you give that to, that same marking to a new music player, it's like they're playing like practically on the bridge. It's like squeaking a lot. It's got, yeah. it's got this like yeah, almost like pseudo distorted guitar kind of effect. Um, so there's just very different ways to approach, you know, what us composers put in the score. And so if you've listened to a lot of Alarmable Sound or Jack Quartet or something, then you might expect a certain response. Uh, and when you go to a full orchestra, they don't see it that way. So you kind of have to like know who you're writing for a little bit, I think, and where your audience is going to be. Or just put like multi multi soul pont. Yeah, yeah. Or put soul pont scratchy or soul pont uh, gnarly. Or soul, like you yeah. got to put some description. Yeah. Otherwise, they're not sure what you mean. You yeah. really want me to make my... The thing is, they don't want to sound bad. Yeah, You know. right. And to them, sounding bad is sounding different than what they're used to playing when they're doing the Mahler. Yeah, but there's—I mean, there are lots of—I mean, lots of great repertoire that push that aggression. So sometimes just like referencing that helps. Like you know, uh, Strauss, for example, writes this like just massive, massive brass sounds, right? And so sometimes if you write triple forte, uh, they're trying to play with a really big sound, but like a really round, pure, good sound still. And sometimes it's saying like you know. <laughs> think like Strauss or something like that um, when you're in the rehearsal to the players are like oh okay got it and they just like blast it out so, what that means. yeah a lot, there's a lot of like little tricks like that to, to kind of figure out how to get these these sound that you want I mean when you're in rehearsal with um, so like if you want to sound like that in orchestra I don't remember the way you interacted with the conductor there at Minnesota or or if you have a story about another orchestra um, 
how is it when you're in rehearsals and you want something specific? Do you do you talk to the conductor? Do you talk to the musicians? Do you? Yeah, I mean, I think in almost every orchestral circumstance, you want to, you know, leave the conductor to do their work. Um, and then occasionally, it depends on the conductor. Some will like to sort of turn around and ask for feedback in the rehearsal. More often, I feel like they come talk to you at the break after a rehearsal and figure out what went well, what you want different. I kind of will often, uh, you know, I think definitely take advantage of the conductor's knowledge, but it can be really useful for like little details to just like at the break, you know, that flute solo didn't go quite how I wanted. Let me go talk to the flute player. You know, it's also nice, not just from like a sound perspective, but it's nice from a composer feeling connected to the ensemble. Like sometimes when you go with work with an orchestra, there's a hundred people on stage and like, the only person you've like personally connected with is the conductor, right? And so it's I love like going to talk to players, like even if you know they sound killer on something, it's like, hey, how how like how was that part? Is that lay okay on your instrument? And like you know, I just feel like you get to know the ensemble, get to know how like they're feeling about playing your piece. If things are going great, if things are like, oh, that's that part's a little tricky. All that stuff is I think great. When you're working with an orchestra yeah i have a funny story about this actually about the going up to the players because i'm mm -hmm. the same way i yeah. love going up to the players during yeah. the break and not just going up to them when something is going wrong you know like when you hear like oh can i help with this or what can we do to make this better even just telling people oh, you sound badass on that thank you you know <laughs> yeah, like totally. that also helps but yeah. i had it uh, had a mentor uh one of these recent orchestral things i did and she was saying you know you know, you don't want to go up to the players during the break. You know, that's their break. And I, and I, I kind of raised my hand and said, you know what? Like, I'm guilty of that. I do that all the time. And <laughs> yeah. she was saying, you know, that's not that's not really, you know, the most professional thing to do. And I'm like, well, you know, I, I, I've i done that basically every rehearsal. And, I, <laughs> and uh, I guess I don't really feel that sorry about it. It's not like I'm talking to every yeah. single musician. Yeah. It's just a few that, uh, yeah. Yeah. that maybe they're sitting there already playing they're like, you know, they're not in the green room or something taking a break. They're like on stage still working on their part. Yeah. I, I mean, I get that. I, I think I understand that being in an orchestra where you practice as much as they do every single week that they're, they, you know, they need their, their pauses, but I've, I've had zero negative interactions. Yeah, I feel like everyone has been like, Oh, this is, I'm so glad like just to, you know, connect with the player who's like, putting a lot into making my music happen yeah and it's not like they're interacting with living composers like every day either <laughs> yeah, right right <laughs> there's also that aspect yeah, to yeah. it too uh, speaking of you know talking to players and being really you know being one-on-one -on -one and having the interaction i want to talk a little bit about yeah, the, this next tune over here uh called splinter for a piano trio mm -hmm. completely different than yeah than anything we're talking about here let's hear a couple minutes
this one was ran for Copeland, uh, the Copeland Cultivate. Copeland House on like, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. What's what's that all about? This was Copeland House has this festival called uh, Cultivate every summer. It's like six composers go to it. They kind of leave it up to the composer what your exact instrumentation is, but they have a piano trio and a clarinet there. So violoncello, piano, clarinet, and I had just been like had this idea for a while for piano trio sort of rolling around in the back of my mind. So um, I decided to write for that. And I was just, when I was writing this, I was really kind of obsessing over bluegrass fiddle techniques. I, I love watching those videos where someone's like, you know, basically like in first position the whole time, like the most comfortable, easiest position you can be in. And, you know, uses a lot of open strings and just kind of just like a little, some slide inflections, some like simple things like that. And it just sounds like gnarly. I just love it. It's like, they sound so virtuosic, um, even in like this really simple place. I think, I think they're, because they're taking advantage of the open strings so much, um, it allows to me like a very vibrant sound. Well, sometimes there's, they're very technically difficult passages, but it just, the idea of like a, have you ever heard the term barn burner? Yeah, barn yeah. burner. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, like a like a virtuoso, like a like a Paganino. Paganini comes to mind, or something like this. A rock yeah. star. Yeah, it's used it's used a lot in in bluegrass, um, and so I I was just like wanting to capture that kind of sound with the violin here. You know, like this whole talk about first position and stuff like that. I mean, it reminds me of uh, like Arabic music or even India Indian raga music, like where. You know, they're like if they're playing on a, some kind of fiddle, they're also like in, they're like in first position also the mm -hmm. whole time. Mm -hmm. They're not moving their hand around that much, mm -hmm. but they're doing a lot of things to make up for the lack of, I would say, like a Western technique where they can jump to another position yeah. really quickly yeah. and things like this. They they um they know how to use vibrato. Like their vibrato is way more varied and yep. complex yep. than mm -hmm. Western mm -hmm. vibrato. The the, the amount of ornamentation they do and things like that are very, way, way more complex. The rhythms are way more complex. Yeah. And uh, you do these things with open fits, not just with the open strings, but you're like, you're like doing open, you're like doing fingered open fits too. Mm -hmm. It's pretty mm -hmm. crazy. I was like, yeah. I was like looking at the score and I'm like, God damn, that's a lot of like parallel fits yeah. um, that are not just the open ones. You got them like fingering yeah uh right open fits that are like definitely uh, not yeah. open fits but fits that are Sliding, laid yeah. on the yeah. laid on the the adjacent strings it's crazy it's it's a uh <laughs> fuchsian nightmare up there yeah uh, <laughs> uh yeah uh breaking all the counterpoint rules personally like i'm 100 percent obsessed with sliding parallel fifths uh i use it in many of my pieces um i just love the, the sound especially on strings so with this, the goal was to sort of take some of that idea of like using the open strings and these like sort of low position, sort of fast technique, uh, bluegrass ideas and like figure out how I can use sort of like new music ideas to like ramp up vitality of that is how I, I think about it anyway. Um, so it's like it started out with like these these like sort of slides where you're starting doing it on one string and, and then realized that like sliding with fifths off of this just like uh, yeah, it just feels like it really unsettles the open string to me a lot. And so I, I feel like you, you kind of have these like really um, feel to me like maybe aggressive or like powerful gestures, but then they always get rooted back in like the stability of the open strings. So, I mean, the other, the other thing too is like when you're playing open string on the violin, like your A and E or G and D or D and A, right? Then you play like a fifth that's fingered. 
like you have these like B's and F's or mm -hmm. you have like E's and B's or things mm -hmm. like this, mm -hmm. I think, where you know, you gotta, you gotta finger those. You can't just like, you can't find an open, there's no open alternative. Yeah. Like the sound gets like muted all of a sudden mm -hmm. and then you get back to the open string, but you're yeah. still doing these parallel fits. Mm -hmm. So it's, the timbre is changing a lot, even though yeah. you're, you're doing like the same kind of sequential thing. Yeah. It's like so simple when you look at it on the page, mm -hmm. but it sounds very complex. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was really cool. Have you heard the piece, um, John Corleano's Stomp? You heard that one? Yeah. Oh, yeah. you have. You mm -hmm. heard it? Yeah. 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 That kind of is. Uh, I mean, yours is very different, but he's he takes that G string and tunes it down to an E. Yeah. And does a, a similar kind of bluegrass. I, I heard. I heard that. Too. I heard that only like last year, but it's oh yeah, a pretty interesting. Piece after, yeah. after you after wrote this, yeah, uh, yeah. what did yeah. you think of the of like? Uh, does I, it feel like you can compare like strategies on how you were doing that or it feels like a completely different thing yeah to i mean I, th I think the the tuning down i think it hypes up the timbral difference that you're just talking about because it's so it's like loose but like fat in a way you know that that low open string so i, I mean it, it's i think a lot of it when i was approaching it is that you take i don't know undergrad level orchestration they tell you don't right fifths for a string player and so for me it was like the sliding had a huge part of it because the reason they don't they tell you not to write it is because it's very hard to tune for a string player because they usually play with like with one finger because you can't get two fingers in the same place so they, they touch one finger to do it so that it's hard to actually like Oh, I gotta tune the, the bottom pitch up. But I'm sort of like turning my whole finger to get yeah. that. Yeah. So if you're if you're watching the video here, like we have like if you have two hands here, right? You got G and D, mm -hmm. right? The G and D string right next to each other. Yeah. If you want to play like A flat and E flat, right? On you want to play A flat on the G string, you want to play E flat on the D string at the same time. Yeah. You got to play like this node here and this node here, which are like right. literally. Right next, right to, next each to each other. other. Yeah, you can't like take your two fingers and go like that. Exactly. You got to put yeah. like one on a finger. You could, yeah. A guitar, right. yeah. Guitar players do that yeah. all the time, right? Yeah. But a violinist is not used to doing this kind of uh, motion when they're mm -hmm. when they're playing like like uh, like this. They're used to. They want to put two fingers to get the. So this is like they don't want to do that. They don't want to do it. I've yeah. encountered that so much too when I'm yeah. writing. But you, you and I, it out I think that to me, the the sliding part makes you know when I when I'm doing it, it's like they're they're sliding through it, or they're they're have like a wide vibrato that I'll request in in Splinter a lot. The intonation is is sort of irrelevant because it's happening so fast, or you're moving off of it so quickly that you're you're getting you hear the pitches, you hear that it's like these sliding fifths, but you don't have to like nail this like drone tuning of it where it's got to be mm. perfect, you know. That makes sense, yeah, because this is the issue that I have a lot, yeah. Yeah. is that especially when I'm, sometimes in orchestra, I write these kind of open, uh, not open fits, but fingered fits, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I put non-divisi, and they don't like that <laughs> at all. They'll play divisi without even writing yeah, yeah, divisi. Yeah. They'll do it anyway. I say, hey, I see you split in the, why aren't you doing the, the double yeah. stops? Like, because we don't want to do it. It sounds better if it's, uh, no, I don't want it to sound better. I want it to sound like that. Like, yeah. I want to have that kind of roughness. Yeah, to it, yeah. but they don't want to play uh often they don't want to play rough but yeah. when you got solo players and mm -hmm. you know you have that one-on-one -on -one communication yeah they they know what they know exactly what you, they expect mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's a particular sound so i think it's just sort of about yeah trying to guide the player to that as best as you can yeah absolutely when you're at this particular festival, it's, it's it's I think it's in New York, right? Upstate yeah, New York. Yeah, it's in uh, Westchester area. Yeah. So do you 
you're there, you're composing this piece, then there's other composers composing for the same group, right? Yeah. Plus or minus some yeah. players. Mm-hmm. Do they all kind of have a prompt? Like, it's like when you go to a festival like this, is there like a prompt like you got to write in a certain style or you got to write this many minutes or uh, like I think how does that work? Yeah, for, there's usually, there's most festivals have like, you know, a certain minutes restriction, you know, just for the occasional composer who wants to like drop in like with a, a 30 minute piece, you know, which sometimes happens. So there's like a, a minute limit, but I think, yeah, they, they left it very open, which I, to me is ideal. Sometimes it's nice to have a prompt to get some, your ideas rolling, but I, you know, it was worked out perfectly. Cause like, like I said, I had this idea in the back of my mind. So this was like the perfect chance to, uh, you know, unleash that. Yeah. I mean, that was, that's why I was wondering because I don't know any other of your pieces that do this kind of Americana bluegrass kind of thing unless i'm it's, maybe it's, com- it's coming that... in lately yeah i i uh i have a piece kindling um that's for sextet like a percussion uh sorry, piero plus percussion sextet and the violin really leans into that and i'm working on a big piece right now that it's not the, like the main feature of it but it kind of has that I, I kind of yeah have kind of become <laughs> a little obsessed with that sound yeah. lately yeah it's hard like when you do something well to not like want to keep going in that yeah but i feel like a lot of composers they find something and they're like oh i need to restart my language on the next piece (laughs) i don't know if you feel that kind of pressure ever um uh yeah i mean i think there's some amount of like you don't want to like repeat yourself but i i find i don't know for the probably like the past maybe eight years i have like different sounds that i keep returning to and i feel like i i'm still finding new stuff to do with them with those like musical materials i i think there probably maybe becomes a point where you're like all right i have like that well has run dry but i'm still finding new stuff with that and i like how it i feel like there's some connection between my body of work which i think is a good thing so i, th- I think i think a, a balance is a good thing to shoot for with that yeah i mean i i'm running into this issue too lately yeah. where i feel like I'm tired of like, at least to me, coming up with new things all the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm like trying to figure out, like I literally have scores of mine. You know how some people have scores of Stravinsky, Firebird, or or, <laughs> or whatever they put like Debussy, where they put uh, they put La Mer or whatever on their stand when they're writing an orchestra piece. Like I, for whatever reason, I put my old pieces. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like the La Mer is not going to help me here. <laughs> I need something that I, that I know that I actually did in the past yeah, <laughs> to help yeah. me out. You know, that was yeah. successful. And so that's what I've been doing. I have these old scores that are up. And I'm like, my God, 2016, 2015, Jesus <laughs> Christ. Like, this has been going on for a while. Taking, like, literally copying things and say, okay, can I use this in a different way? And that I've never done before. Like, mm-hmm. I, I felt like I, uh, we both have been composing long enough, though. Even though we're both relatively young, I mean, we've been composing long enough where we can start, you know, theoretically do things like that, which... Yeah kind of blows my mind actually to be honest with you yeah you know i have i have a couple pieces oftentimes like if i'm writing like if i write a 10 minute piece uh very likely i write about like 20 minutes of material for that some of it's like you know just different variations on what i end up using in the piece that i you know i pulled for x or y reason but some there's there's definitely places where like oh this material is like very much tied to the piece that I didn't, and I didn't use it, and I'll like start a new piece on that, and it's like so these two pieces feel like very related because <laughs> that material originally fit with all this stuff, 
So it feels kind of, it feels like, I don't know, cannibalistic, even though it's like new, <laughs> it's new, it's new it. material, you know? Actually, I, ha- I have another recent piece that I l- literally copied, like one or two bars that are in another piece. And I, I felt weird about it, but I was like, it, it fits here too, you know? I don't know. I, I'm not sure how I'm oh, still I assessing how I feel it. about it. Yeah. I feel super weird about yeah. it too. I mean, I'm doing it right now with the piece I'm writing now. Yeah. I mean, I, I literally copied the last... The eight bars of my mm-hmm. my octet it was like mm-hmm. kind of like a symphonetta th- for ice mm-hmm. for the national oh, yeah, ensemble yeah. which is kind of like a i feel like almost like a sister organization for whatever reason to alarm will sound yeah. like in my mind i think I, alarm will sound like I know of ice, yeah, you know yeah. and i literally just copied that that last eight bars because mm-hmm. i i was so happy with how it went i'm like how can i turn this into an orchestra piece yeah and it was kind of weird in the beginning to like literally do that, like, and not do it by accident. Cause sometimes mm-hmm. that happens by accident. Cause you're you, yeah. you know, you're gonna, yeah. but like to do it like on purpose. Yeah. And then feel that it eventually it feels right. I'm like, huh, this is a new experience yeah. for me. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, th- I, the context totally changes it. So I feel like justified in doing it, but it, it is, yeah, it's a weird, it feels a little dirty. It feels dirty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i want to i want to move on to something else um i think this is an older piece right because i've heard this i've definitely heard this piece before uh called rift and shade yeah for yeah. string quartet it's another new music ensemble too for whatever reason i think alarm ice i think uh, alarm did i say alarm ice? ice i did yeah. say that right <laughs> <laughs> alarm sound ice and the, usually the third ensemble after that i say is jack quartet yeah yeah i mean to me those are the three um yeah, yeah. there are a lot more but like when i think of the ones that come to my head first for whatever reason those are the three so let's hear a couple of minutes of this yeah one i don't know for whatever reason you know you can shoot me if you want it reminded it reminded me of the wc string quartet but your version of it oh yeah the, 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 the pizzicato no, the, thing yeah yeah wc or 
I think, you know, Ravel, Ravel too. Like, I, I feel like the music is very different, but, I, like, when I started composing, I mean, I, I wrote a lot when I was younger, but in college was when I sort of properly decided I was going to be, become a composer. I listened to, I had an album that was Ravel and F and WC and G, and I, like, wore that thing out because I was writing, like, my very first string quartet. And so, I, you know, I still love those pieces. All the new music stuff I've heard, still love those pieces. And so... There's definitely gestures that, you know, I, I think I'm really attracted to in that, that it's like this this sound just sounds really vibrant here in Ravel, or like, you know, the pizzicato stuff is just like, you know, just incredible energy to me. And so I, this is sort of like my first maybe like big boy string quartet. And so I wanted to sort of like play, you know, like how can I take these sounds that are, it kind of really drew me to composition early on and bring my modern sensibilities to it. Would you say like this, because this piece is like from 2016, right? Mm -hmm. Or is it even earlier than that? Yeah, 2016, is this yeah. like probably the piece that you would say like kind of started like the stuff you're working on now or were there pieces before? 100%. Yeah. yeah, this I feel like this is this is sort of a piece that feels like it started like my career and my current style, you know, wow. I, feel, I feel, I feel like I'm sure you like went through this, this too. Like you had that one piece that you like win some competitions with and you're like, Oh, okay. Like I, I can, I can maybe do this. And th this was that piece for me. And so, you know, when I like do presentations, uh, still I'll like often talk, I'll often talk a little bit about this piece because it feels like a lot of my music is developing off of ideas from that vinyl for example uh like the pitch sliding stuff that we were talking about earlier that the second movement of this piece rift and shade the shade movement has this pitch sliding and so like that i first stumbled on on that like on a keyboard and i had a pitch mod wheel and i was just like oh my god i could listen to this for 20 minutes <laughs> just just literally playing a chord and sliding it and i don't know why i was just so obsessed with that sound but that plays into like the sliding fifths we were talking about earlier. It's it's like it's it's really been a big um, influence on me. So yeah, and you did have sliding fits too in the sliding. very last part. Yep, and that yeah that reminded me too because I heard vinyl. I think after I heard this, yeah, because I've heard this piece a long time ago. Yeah, and I was like, yeah, that that is from that piece. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. um, like you were saying before, it's a completely different context. Yeah. It's it does not mean you're copying yourself. It's literally yeah. it's literally something different. Yeah, I think I think I think yeah. It's kind of like realizing when, when, to me when I when I found these sounds that are, that give me that experience where it's like I just play this as like as I'm writing the piece and I just like want to live in that space for a long time. That to me is like okay, there's a lot to mine here, you know. And so like you you know, you do your best to mine it for the piece you're working on. But, but really when I, when I get obsessed with something like that, it's like, okay, I can do a lot with this material. And so I try to think about other angles I can approach that idea for different pieces. Yeah. I mean like all that rhythmic element in the, in the, in the riffs movement. I mean, we, we hear it in the bluegrass in the splinter mm -hmm. piece, yeah. I mean, you hear it there, but mm -hmm. it's completely different con context. Yeah. And you hear it in the beginning of vinyl also a little bit too, the, the mm -hmm. rhythmic uh, the rhythmic language you're using too. So it's there, but like, you know, unless you pointed it out, you don't really notice right, right now. I'm noticing it cause we're talking about it, but mm -hmm. we're just a couple of nerds. You know, 99% <laughs> you know, of people doesn't really matter. So. <laughs> yeah. Right. right. I, I wanted to go back uh, to something you said about it. Cause I also experienced this too. 
that you know you wrote this piece rifts and, Sh rifts and shades and um you won some competitions with it and then you realize oh maybe this is maybe i'm somewhere maybe i'm yeah. getting somewhere here mm -hmm. and i also had the same experience too winning a bunch of competitions with a couple pieces from actually the similar time period 2015 yeah, yeah. Right. 2016 i have to ask because i i mean i also have a kind of answer to this too um is there when you when you win a competition or you win many competitions for this for a single piece is that what drives you to keep going in that direction or is it like or is it something else maybe you wrote the piece and you felt it before you even won something um or is it something in between huh? yeah definitely the latter i mean yeah the, the of it like definitely feeling like i was i when i finished that piece i felt like just like it did everything that i was trying to like wanted to hear you know i i felt like which I, I think is like to me. I, I I've always like described it to my students as like this is like a, a rite of passage. I feel like that you get as a composer. Like you spend so much time. Like you have mentor composers. You have your teachers, and you're like you you know you're bringing your stuff. You want to know what they think, and at some point you arrive at this place where it's like, that that was everything I wanted to do, and you could go to concerts and or submit it to competitions and do really well or really terribly like you know people hate the piece or they you, you don't win anything or something like that and the fact that it, like did everything you wanted to do is just like you know it's it's all you wanted to happen you know so like the idea that if i took that rift and shade to a lesson and someone was like oh i, I don't like this or you know you should change this it'd be like nah that's that's <laughs> that's 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 exactly what, what i wanted which is you know to me it was like a really kind of empowering thing as a composer to just feel like that was exactly what i wanted to do and so I've, I've, i'm definitely sort of like a maybe tedious composer i like really spend a, a lot of time trying to get everything to feel like that to me um doesn't always happen, but I feel like when I when I feel that way and I send a piece out, it's just like really gratifying to just know that I can feel confident in what I tried to do uh, was accomplished on the score at least. Yeah, so like that that kind of gratification, that kind of knowing the knowing part mm -hmm. probably happens when you finish the piece. It doesn't even happen when you give it to the performers. Yeah, it happens right. like when you finish. Yeah, wow. I mean, yeah, certainly sometimes like, you know, you, you send a piece of performers and you hear it live and you're like, wow, that was, I, I thought that was okay, but that turned out really good or something. But yeah, I, I, def I definitely feel that way in the score. Um, but, I, you know, it's like to answer your question, though, like winning, winning the competitions is really just like feels like it affirms how you felt about the piece. And uh, it's, yeah, it also gives you more chances for commissions and to write new pieces and everything. So when I feel that way about a piece, I definitely try to make sure yeah. I submit it to stuff, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I feel the same way when I, I know if the piece is good when I finish it, like regardless of showing it to anyone. Well, I show it to my wife. That's yeah. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she's, she's a hard Christ. <laughs> but, but yeah. when she doesn't say anything, that's when I know it's good. She's like, yeah, that's good. That's, or she doesn't even say it's good. It's like, oh yeah, that, 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 that works. Yeah, I say that, yeah works. that works. And now yeah. I say that to my students, that, that works. That's, and that's, they know that that means I like it if I say that works. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> because right. it doesn't really matter if I like the tune, yeah. right? It, it matters if you like the tune. It doesn't really yeah. matter if somebody else likes it at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, it matters if you feel satisfied with it. So my, my wife is a scientist, also, you know, also a non-musician. And I feel like you, you get a lot of information from their feedback. I think as composers, like we're very much sort of trained to 
like take your aesthetic interests out of the listening experience. Like not to say that I don't like listen to stuff and think I enjoy this or I love this, but, but like my brain is like sort of wired now to like assess how the composer is going through their ideas, what they're doing with the material, um, all, all that, all these like little nitty gritty composition things. And I don't always think about like how it makes me feel. And I remember listening to like some gnarly new music thing. I forget what it was. And my wife walks into the room. She's like, that's kind of creepy. And I was like, oh, yeah, like, no, it is. You're right. <laughs> I didn't even like register that. that <laughs> yeah, it's not even, it's that, not even uh, something yeah. that you were even thinking about. Right. Yeah, I agree. I'm the same way. So I think, you know, everything that, that I write for myself, I, it, you know, <laughs> put my aesthetics onto it, obviously. Um, but it's it's useful, I think, to to separate a little bit and to because you can get so many cool ideas from, uh, you know, beautiful, ugly, gnarly, scary stuff like that in the right context, you know, to go back to context, like it depends on how you use the idea. So listening widely is definitely, I think, big focus of like my teaching and just my composing too. I mean, speaking of listening widely, you guys all listen widely to his stuff. <laughs> Charles Peck, um, got it down in the description below and I appreciate you coming. It's a lot of fun. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Going super formal. That's <laughs> fine. Go however you want. All right, and there you have it. <laughs> cool.